This podcast is brought to you by Glitterati Communications. Learn more about Glitterati at BeGlitterati.com. What's up? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm an artist and a designer and the founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. And this is the Art Pays Me podcast. I love talking to creative people about their business, their successes, their challenges, and how they make the world a better place with their work. Let's get into it. I've been thinking regularly about how I'm the same age that my grandfather was when he died, 36 years old. Did Bernie ever talk about his time in Korea? There's no doubt in my mind that he had some memories. Different family members use different terms, but the one I grew up hearing the most was that my grandfather was murdered. Aunt Jean said that this changed the family's lives forever. I want to know what happened to the person I'm named after. The audio you just listened to is from Bernie Langer wants to know what happened to Bernie Langer, and we'll be talking to one of the folks that are behind this film in a second. Welcome to Art Pays Me. Today we have Jackie Torrens. So, Jackie, what what is it that you do? Um, some days I ask myself, what is it I don't do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably can empathize with the fact that if you're going to be a freelancer who works in the arts and you're going to live somewhere like the East Coast of Canada, um, you have to do um, many things. And actually, if you're lucky enough to be able to do more than one thing, um, you should do that. So sometimes I act, sometimes I write, sometimes I direct, sometimes I produce, sometimes I host things. Um, and I've been doing that for a couple of decades now and um, have been able to, I don't know, pay my light bill, uh, which seems like a big success as an arts freelancer. <laughs> so yeah, and I started out in the world of fiction and then about 10 years ago, uh, doing work in nonfiction, specifically documentary uh, also entered my life. Um, but I find it really interesting because uh, all those jobs uh, inform all the other jobs. And uh, it's great for sort of keeping my um, myself energized and inspired and uh, to keep continually learning. Right. That's I, I, you know what? I found the same thing. It, it makes it actually. So we both have that in common where we juggle lots of different creative practices, if, so to speak. But do you find it hard to if you get overwhelmed, drop one of them or drop a couple when, like you said, they inform each other? It, it depends. Like, uh, I know when I was younger, uh, if I, I could only work on one thing at a time and mm. it really stressed me out to move from one thing to another. And then, and I also thought it was some sort of indication that I wasn't a serious enough artist if I was going to be flitting around from one medium to another. And then after a certain point, I realized, uh, no, this is good for my work overall. It makes me a better writer to then sometimes have the experience where I'm an actor and I'm saying dialogue. It helps me write better dialogue. Even if I'm saying, if I'm saying great dialogue, I'm inspired. If I'm saying bad dialogue, I'm, I'm inspired to write better. 
Um, mm -hmm. So uh, not anymore, but it did at, uh, it did certainly when I was younger. Now I find it helpful and useful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I've, <laughs> that's so funny because yeah, I've, I've keep kicking myself in, in the, in the back to say, stop doing that, that whole thing where I, I look at say painters that I really admire, for instance, and I really like that they have one specific style. They stick to one sort of thing. You know what you're getting from them almost every single time. And I'm like, I should be more like that. But then, you know, maybe that's just not my journey. Uh, why And why? Why do I think that that's the only type of artist that gets taken seriously? The one that you can identify very specifically with one thing. Oh, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And maybe that isn't part of your journey. And that's where I kind of got with me. Maybe that's not part of my journey either. In the end, I feel like what remains consistent is art and story that never changes. So I serve it in different capacities, but that's always the North star of my life that exists. Yes. Um, so that's the consistency. Yeah. So we didn't actually touch on this yet, but I really love following you on uh, social media. So <laughs> Jackie like goes on some rants and, and I think I have kind of, a similar thing at times and maybe not necessarily rants but very outspoken on uh things that matter and uh i appreciate that I, i've never told you that but i do appreciate it <laughs> oh thanks likewise i appreciate when you go on rants rants is an interesting word though isn't it it's just yes. like uh kind of there's people who uh say what they feel all the time and depending on who they are it's never considered uh you know a, a rant per se it's actually yeah. just sharing your perspective so, absolutely yeah. and that's why yeah i i pulled that back a little bit because i'm trying to um yeah like it is it's it's just being honest it's just uh saying look this is how i feel about something and i, I guess and i'm the type of person that does more suppress how i feel in my real life and which actually ties into <laughs> some of what I loved about this this documentary uh that uh, we're going to talk about a little bit later but um first um so you have a company called Peep Media what is Peep Media so Peep Media is company uh it's Halifax based I run it with a producer Jessica Brown so it's a female owned production company we started about uh, 10 years ago and uh, we started our company because essentially we wanted to give ourselves opportunities that we were not being given at that time. And even though both Jessica and I came from the world of scripted television and film, um, we started to have our work of our company be based in documentary, mostly because, uh, you know, especially at that time, women traditionally have been afforded more opportunity in documentary film because it pays less. So um, so that's where we started, although a project we're working on right now is a scripted project, which I'm, I'm interested. I'd like to have both in my life, scripted and non-scripted. So yeah, Peep Media started 10 years ago um, to basically give ourselves opportunities no one else was giving us. And it's been great and astonishing and exhilarating and long past the time to see um, the changes that have happened in the last 10 years, in the last five years, in the last two years in the last two weeks it feels like mm. you know and there's still like uh way more change to come you know sure. way way more people need to have um uh 
need to have their opportunity. So there's uh, still a long way to go for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how did you find uh, like the film industry in general? It seems like it, it, it took some hits in this last couple of years. How have you found that in producing this, this documentary during that time? Uh, well, uh, I wouldn't recommend doing a film in a pandemic, uh, but somehow <laughs> it got done. This film, there was a long journey to do this film, actually, mm. uh, 10 years really kind of in the making. Usually when I do a documentary, I find the story first and then I start working on um, the concept, how I'm going to portray that story. In this instance, I had the idea uh, for the concept, which was to tell documentary reenactments using miniatures. That came yeah. about 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. And then once I had that concept, I knew I had to find a really particular kind of story to tell, uh, to use that idea with. And so it was another five, six years before I came across this guy named Bernie Langell, who was on Twitter one night asking his uh, the public for any help that they might have, any information they might be able to give him in this bizarre story, um, this 50-year-old story of the unresolved uh, death of his grandfather, who he was named after. So then because um, Jessica and I knew that the idea to use miniature sets was kind of an out of the box one. We figured, hey, we better do a short first as some sort of proof of concept, shop that short around, see if we could get interest in a feature. So we were lucky enough to get one of the last Bravo Factual grants that was on the go. And that gave us the money to do an 18 minute short based on this idea. And we needed a, a sizable budget for this short because um, this documentary idea means that you need um, a healthy budget for an art department, which is not something every documentary always has. So we were able to do the short in 2018. We brought it up to Hot Docs, which is the uh, largest North American documentary festival. Um, and it premiered there. And we went up expressly with um, the idea to see if we could get someone to commission it to be a feature. And luckily enough, almost as soon as we arrived, Jordana Ross from the Documentary Channel said, I, I would love for this to be a feature. Uh, that doesn't happen all <laughs> the time. So it was it's great when a plan comes to fruition. We also had plan B, plan C, plan D, if it didn't happen sure. that way. Um, so she commissioned it. Then Jess had to spend another year, you know, basically getting the financing together um, because we knew we were going to need a number of sets to tell this story, um, uh, plus all the other stuff you need to make a movie. Um, and then basically it's a, it was a few weeks into 2020, we start filming the actuality with Bernie Langell, the actuality in a documentary is when you're going out with your documentary subject and filming them in real life. We were a few weeks into doing that. And then the pandemic happened, shut us down for three months. At that time, we didn't know it was going to be three months. We were able to resume filming the summer of the first summer of the pandemic, 2020. 20. So we finished our actuality shooting in that summer. Um, but it was really weird. Everything was affected. And what I found, uh, even though people were game to keep going, crew and participants, um, and, you know, in some cases we were deal dealing with elderly people. Um, sure. So it was, uh, you know, trying to manage all that, make sure things were filmed in COVID safe conditions and that people were comfortable. But the biggest obstacle um, was uh, people's mindsets. 
everyone had gone from living a somewhat normal life to all of a sudden the world was on fire. And mm. so to kind of go back to where we had been just before the pandemic started to say, I know the world's on fire, but could we talk about this thing we were talking about before the world got on fire? It was really difficult. And, and then the world is scripted. You know, you can kind of say to an actor, I know things are crazy, but could you put this hat on and say these lines and, you know, go do that job. But I'm dealing with real people. Um, and that's an entirely different thing. So, and then after we finished the actuality, I went and did an assembly of our actuality. And then uh, in order to prepare for a month long shoot for shooting the miniatures. And when we filmed the miniatures down at the culture link, we were in another lockdown. And so every day we were filming, every day I went to work, I didn't know if that was gonna be our last day of filming, if we would be shut down again. So it was tremendously difficult, um, but everybody rode for the shore, crew and participants alike. And I'm really grateful for that. But yeah, no, I'd never wanna do a film in a pandemic again. Filming's hard enough. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I yeah, so I always ask filmmakers this, uh, how do you keep all of that stuff together so that it comes out to actually make sense in the end? <laughs> all of the... Recording, all of the... <laughs> everything. <laughs> well, I guess that depends a lot on the on, on the talent of the, the filmmaker and their ability mm. to tell a story. I mean, I think with Bernie... You know, from start to finish, uh, we had about 1,400 hours of filming that we had done. And wow. you know, it was, I know, it was my job to whittle that down into uh, 78 minutes, you know. Um, so it's interesting with documentary because, uh, you know, there's, there's fiction in nonfiction in the sense of you have to impose a structure. It's, yeah. You can't actually just take real life. If you did just real life, it would be very boring because you would be including lots of things that are non-essential. So there is a, a structure definitely imposed on there. Um, uh, I knew I knew at the start of this story that um, that Bernie wanted to find out uh, as many answers as he could as to what had happened to his grandfather in order to bring healing to his family. And that was kind of on uh, us, me and my research team to do that. In, in order for Bernie to do that, he would have had to quit his job and full-time devote himself to seeing what he could find out. And he couldn't do that. So with his blessing, he had a series of questions that he wanted answered. And we went out and tried to find as many answers to those questions as we could. On top of that, we put out a call to the public to say, we're doing this film. Did anybody know Corporal Bernard Langell? And mm. we started hearing from people that way. So... I never expected that this was going to be a true crime mystery um, in the sense of that's what the all the film was about and that we would be solving the mystery and tying it up into a nice tidy little bow. I thought we'll probably get some answers, but really at the heart, what this film is about is about family stories, family narratives, and their effect on individual identity. And um, and so I, with documentary, you go with a plan and then you want to leave enough air for the real life that can occur before you as the cameras are rolling. Mm -hmm. And I forgot to actually say, so the, the film we're talking about is uh, Bernie Langell wants to know what happened to Bernie Langell. That's uh, the name of it. Uh, 
So I, I watched it and incredibly done. The cinematography is great. And of course, the storytelling was, was great. And uh, did you ever find yourself, um, and like you said, like documentary, there is some fiction in there in general, but like in terms of when you start discovering information, did you feel like you were pushing a certain narrative or was it your intention, intention to push a certain narrative in terms of, oh, who might actually be responsible for the Corporal Andrew's death? I think you, uh, I think that's really natural for everybody to get invested in narratives, including a filmmaker who's trying to make a narrative with a documentary participant. But I think you have to be open and honest with yourself and making sure that you're not imposing things that are not authentically there. So uh, for us, uh, the starting ground of being, I mean, the first, the only thing when I met Bernie Langell that he kind of had in terms of documentation about what happened to his grandfather, and, and to give a quick summary, that essentially, Bernie Langell had grown up with the story that his grandfather, who he never met, uh, worked on CFB Gagetown as a mechanic, went out one night drinking with friends, and then his wife woke up in the middle of the night uh, with her husband in bed beside her with his head bashed in. And then a number of even odder ensuing things happened after that, culminating in Corporal Langell dying a couple of days later. Um, and then for basically decades, the family had been left without any proper answers. And Bernie Langell, the grandson, uh, what he had been able to find was the medical examiner's report to his grandfather. And so he had about 10 key questions that he wanted the answers to. So that was... Um, that was a great foundation. And those were his mm. questions. He wanted to know the answers to that. So that, that was a great place for us to start. And it's always a negotiation with your documentary participant. This is what we're doing. Is this, is this what's working for you? So, um, so then, you know, I would take him to meet someone to talk to someone and I would set it up with him by saying, essentially, um, we're here to talk to this biomechanics expert. He can, you had this specific question this is the person who can answer that question for you. And then Bernie would conduct the interview. Every so often I might interject and say, because I would know specific, specific information that the expert knew, I would say, can you please ask him this? Um, but it was, it was a partnership in terms of what we were finding out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found myself uh, really invested and then going back and forth into who I thought was responsible and then what happened, et cetera, et cetera. But then the, the reveal at the end was interesting. Uh, so in terms of another thing that I kind of noticed at times, it felt like an indictment of masculinity in some ways, um, not intentionally, but I, I thought that I really enjoyed the interaction between Bernie uh his uncle and then the cousin i think he'd be cousin yeah um and uh you know they at one point talking about um he didn't feel okay with expressing the emotion over being in the house when this tragic thing happened and it's like i'm thinking to myself wow like no that you that was something seriously traumatic that is perfectly fine for you to be emotional about. Did you ever find yourself sort of catching things like that? 
Well, I certainly wasn't doing any approach where I felt like I want to condemn toxic masculinity or anything like that. Um, that I didn't feel that was my place, nor did I feel that was kind of necessary. What I felt was that certainly um, some aspects of uh, the patriarchal culture, which kind of demands that um, mm -hmm. if you're a man, you have to be a certain kind of human, which means that um, you're not able to express your emotions. And there mm -hmm. are real costs and consequences of that, not only for the men who experience that, but for the people who are around those men. I mean, yeah. uh, those were things that Bernie and his uncles, uh, they talked about on their own. Um, mm -hmm. So there was no suggestion for me to talk about that. That's what kind of came out um, with with them discussing it. And in fact, when Bernie goes to talk to Charlie Winters, who is a now elderly veteran who once served with Bernie, uh, Corporal Bernie Langell, um, it was Bernie himself that started to ask about, uh, was there a culture of masculinity that made it difficult for people, for veterans who were going off to serve and then seeing gruesome things and then coming back and not being allowed to talk about it was this part of what led to you know a culture where people are drinking heavy and yeah. abuse can happen and yeah so that kind of just naturally uh kind of emerged from the material that uh we were working with well yeah and uh, yeah you saying that I, I think when i thought about that i guess it was before they actually had that conversation and when they did have that conversation it was like a full circle moment of them kind of coming to that realization it was I really, really liked that. It was it was powerful. It felt like um Bernie, the the junior grandson, uh had some kind of growth and the story like actually really uh shows how intergenerational trauma can really uh show up in different people. And I thought it was also interesting, like so I was in therapy recently and uh, one of the things I said was I you know, when I experience like uh, overwhelm, I don't necessarily express it as outwardly as others do. And my wife was kind of like, yeah, you do. And when he and Bernie said that uh, he doesn't get angry, I was like, hmm, that's kind of reminded me of something. Uh, and then like later, he comes to the realization that, oh, I've been kind of conditioned to to suppress all of these emotions but I actually really do feel things and you know express the importance of wanting to to not perpetuate these things going forward it's yeah. interesting sorry to break in there Dwayne it's interesting when you consider that in the context of um of our family stories which I think are kind of strange inheritances that we all uh, receive and that we don't often examine that these stories are passed down to us oftentimes they're incomplete oftentimes they have bits and fragments and uh, we think they're just stories and they don't have an effect on us but they do and that uh, was Bernie's um, uh, premise for himself when he began this that that this story had affected other members of his family it didn't affect him how could met his grandfather and yet uh, he made that realization of up in a house of trauma meant that there was no room for uh, him to express who he was and how he felt. Yeah. There's an interesting study on um, 
stop me if you don't want me to go into this, but uh, oh, please go. Dr. Brian Diaz uh, is a researcher, uh, and when he was working with Emory University, he uh, did this experiment with a generation of mice and the odor of cherry blossom. And he gave the mice a negative shock every time they smelled uh, the odor of cherry blossom. And very soon, the mice began to have a trauma response every time the odor of, of cherry blossom was in the air. Um, the interesting thing the researchers then found was that uh, this trauma response to that particular odor was passed down to the mice's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, even though those ensuing generations never experienced the negative shock on the foot. So um, these trauma responses were being passed down. Dr. Diaz also talked to me at the time about how he he felt that there was hope in this experiment in the sense of those effects once awareness is reached can be reversed. And it's. I think it's. there's probably a compelling case for us humans there. Once we are aware of the ways that we are acting and the origins of these behaviors, then we can, we can do something about it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating, actually. Oh, um, wow. That, that's really got my, my mind kind of thinking about things. It, it just translates into so many different uh, aspects of, of our human experience. Like, it's, yeah, wow. So, um, question, did you, did you, did you keep the dolls afterwards? <laughs> I've never been asked that. Um, actually, just two weeks ago, Iris uh, Sutherland, Sh Shelley Acker, who are the two women who were my art department for this feature film, uh, two women who, before they worked on this film, had never worked in television or film before. Really? Uh, yes. Two women from the Valley who had been hobby miniaturists and then became my art department. They came a couple of weeks ago and packed up um, the sets and, and took the dolls. I actually kept one of the sets that's in my home just for, um, you know, um, affections purposes, I suppose, thinking of this, pro this project that we all worked on. But yeah, Shelley Acker actually owns, um, because of working on the film, she uh, opened up a store in Kentville that sells miniature items. And so she's going to display the sets down there. Very so cool. Most of the dolls are with them. But we had like something like 50 dolls and Iris had to dress and um, contour all of them. In terms of the Corporal Langel dolls alone, we had to have like five or six Corporal Langel dolls because he would be in different states of... Um, of health depending on where we were in the story so yeah yeah I, they they really did a great job of telling the story but also keeping a little bit of the creepiness of uh like you know like you said it ended up being a true crime uh story which i i kind of expected but i didn't expect at the same time uh I call oh. it a true crime. It starts as a true crime story, but really it ends up being a existential investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, one man's existential investigation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a little bit more about you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlottetown uh, PEI, but even though I was born in the Charlottetown hospital and raised there for the first 20 years of my life, I was still kind of seen as a come from away because uh, my parents <laughs> weren't from there. My dad was from England and my mom was from the States and uh, both of them died actually when I was very young, when I was a very small oh. child. So um, 
Uh, I felt very ambivalent about growing up in PEI. Uh, we also weren't Christian. So in those days, that was a, you're not from here and you're not Christian. Um, right. So I definitely had an outsider feeling in the place I grew up in. And actually, when my dad died, he, uh, my mother was united, but my dad, by the time he died, was following, he'd been on a spiritual search all his life. And he was following this obscure East Indian religion called Saint Matt when he died. And uh, basically, the Catholics and the Protestants didn't know what to do with him when he died. So he's he's kind of buried in this corner of the cemetery. I always like to joke, you know, next to the Hindu, um, the other person that they didn't know uh, what to do with. So uh, things are different now in PEI. It's wow. actually much more diverse and so on. But yeah, it was pretty. Um, and now, though, I none of my family lives there anymore. We all kind of left there as soon as we could. Um now, though, I, I usually go over once a year. I have a very um, in a particular and intense relationship with the geography, um, which I think a lot of people feel with the place of their birth, even if they have ambivalent feelings. Mm, that's interesting. So what brought you to Nova Scotia? Uh, uh, a baby. Uh, I... <laughs> I uh, I left home when I was 16. I was left in the care of my of a step parent who was a, a pretty damaged and damaging personality, and mm. I left as soon as I could. And uh, I lived in um, uh, a boarding house in PEI, and I was trying to finish my school. So I'd get up in the morning and I'd hitchhike to school, and then I'd go to school, and then I'd work in a pizza shop all night. And I was kind of a sitting duck for the first um, guy that was going to come along and say, I love you. So I got myself uh, knocked up when I was about 17. And then, and that's when I was like, I better get my shit together. And uh, I came over to Halifax to finish my school because I felt like I, this was also where I wanted to go to university to take my English degree. Mm -hmm. So I did that. So I actually was a teenage welfare mother for about uh, four years. And uh, that oh, was wow. a really formative, fundamental and profound experience that has affected my entire life. And in fact, one of the documentaries that Jess and I did a few years ago was called My Week on Welfare, which was an examination of the income assistance program here in Nova Scotia, where I lived with two different uh, people who were currently on the system. And I lived for that week on a welfare budget. Before that sounds like poverty slumming, I think um, the, the, I was able to do that because I was uh, coming from my own personal history of having spent years on the system. So I was very intimately acquainted with um, what that system is, how it seeks to punish those who are on it, and actually how it ends up costing the rest of us billions more each year than it has to. So I, um, as hard as those years were, and they were exceptionally difficult, I'm really grateful for that experience because the first person's stereotypes about people on welfare that I had to overcome were my very own. <laughs> so, yeah. This makes so much more sense now. <laughs> 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 yeah right when you when you're kind of an outlier um you got you might as well speak your piece you know? yeah yeah like so uh you you really intimately understand so like i find sometimes when i talk to folks um there's such a strong disconnect from 
what it looks like for for folks that are on the margins and how quickly and easily that can shift for us and uh yeah so you you're you can really empathize with that because you've been there it's it's uh very tough uh, the other thing yeah and the 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 thing that was so useful and breathtaking and difficult too about when I found myself on income assistance you know I was a middle-class gal and there I yeah. was on income assistance. The thing that stunned me so much were the two faces of people that I encountered. So in my middle-class existence, before I became a knocked up welfare, a teenage welfare mother, you know, I would meet um, professionals in the community and they would treat me one way. And then all of a sudden, when I was on income assistance and trying to get my life together and trying to go back to school, those same people would treat me very differently. So I had, uh, I was treated um, very terribly especially by people that you would expect to be helping you, legal aid lawyers, principals of schools, uh, nurses, things, uh, people who had one face that they would show to middle-class people and then another face that they showed to uh, people that they perceived to be um, at the bottom of, um, of society. So mm -hmm. that was really interesting and quite useful. I remember... Um, I was going to Dartmouth High to get my grade 12 and Dartmouth High had just opened a daycare in the school that year to great controversy. There was lots of people that just wanted those teenage sluts to go away and never be heard Jesus. from again. And uh, I remember I was walking my baby into school one day through the front door and the principal came up to me and said, um, could you make sure you and your baby go in the back door when you go to school? I don't want the other students to see you. Uh, essentially, I was a bad example. And I was so stunned at that time that, and, uh, and Dwayne, I was such a good girl. Like I was so motivated to just go to school and get my education, take care of my baby. It wasn't giving anyone any trouble, um, but just my existence was. So uh, anyway, when he said that to me, I was so stunned. I said nothing, but every day after that, for the rest of the year, I marched myself and my welfare baby through that front door every yes. day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that is that is disgusting. Like, come on. But I I appreciate I appreciate that. Yes. Disgusting and not surprising <laughs> though, really. Not surprising, you know? no. Yeah. Yeah. We... <sighs> Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. We really need to examine why we need to place as a species. We've got such a, a strong urge in us to assign value to other groups of human beings so we can feel better, superior, all the rest of that. And it's amazing to me that we don't actually examine that trait more. There's such a cost to that trait that we have. Yeah. Do you think that like most people sort of lack self-awareness? Um, well, it's in, when I was younger, I actually thought everybody must be able to be empathetic. How difficult can it be to actually um, watch someone get, getting slapped and place yourself in those shoes and go, that would hurt my face if someone came up to me and slapped yeah. me, you know? Um, but uh, somewhere along the way, I was like, wow, even though empathy seems kind of like a no brainer, uh, it seems to be a bit of a brainer. Um, and uh, it's a deficit of imagination, I think. And that's where art comes in for yep. me, um, because art is that bridge that can then take you there. I think one thing, anybody who wasn't a 
cis white guy, able-bodied white guy, um, for the longest time, that's who the universal protagonist, the default human being for all of us, right? We had to read books and watch movies and all the rest of it with basically one kind of protagonist. And mm -hmm. we all had to put ourselves into that story and, and find ourselves in that story, even though the protagonist didn't necessarily look like us. And we could do that. The only people who've been left out of doing that are cis, straight, uh, able-bodied white guys. They now have to, um, now that things are changing and that there's more, uh, uh, the door is opening slightly and we are accepting this notion that the protagonist has many faces and comes from many different places. Um, um, those uh, cis white guys are now going to have a chance to increase their uh, imagination that way by um, by ingesting different protagonists and finding out that the universal is in all of those protagonists. For me, that makes me really excited for where story is going. Like no one is being left behind as far as I'm concerned. If mm -hmm. the door is opening slightly to let those of us who haven't been allowed in, in, where that can take story, I just, I'm so thrilled for it. But it's the same for those cis um, able-bodied white guys. Like now, if they look at it the right way, they can put down those tropes that have bound them as well about what mm -hmm. that kind of person is supposed to be. And they can start exploring uh, new things through story. So I think we're at a yeah. really exciting time for story and art. I love that you put that there. I've kind of two things I wanted to touch on with that is I, I often think about how patriarchy actually hurts men in ways that we don't all always understand. And particularly if you don't naturally identify with patriarchal stereotypes. Um, like I, I just remember always uh, feeling that I had to conform or change myself or hide certain aspects of myself in order to fit in or feel welcome or feel like this is what men do. This is what men don't do. And uh, being an artist is all often in conflict with that because you have to be sort of emotionally aware and empathetic and in tune. And a lot of times I'm told that men aren't supposed to be empathetic and men are supposed to push through. And, and if you don't want to be that man or don't feel naturally, some, some guys just force it until they make themselves that <laughs> and it hurts them. Uh, yeah. Hurts them and everybody around them, everybody around them. Uh, so yeah. And so this just reminded me of a, a blind spot that I've had as as a man, even though a black man. Um, so when I was in art school and we would study our history, you know, I've lately been complaining about how the curriculum in general design and art uh, often leaves out people of color in general uh, from that that story. And I realized uh, I've been listening to this podcast called The Great Women Artists, and I you know, I felt silly because I often forgot how not just people of color in general, but women in particular were left out of a lot of that history. And so they, they you know, they talk a lot about these women and how they just basically weren't allowed to even create art. And a lot of times you see the women that are featured in paintings. These were the mod. These were models uh who ultimately ended up in some cases being artists be but the way they got in the door was 
by posing for these painters and then they could eventually start you know doing their own thing here and there but they very rarely got the attention that they deserve so um yeah that's uh but the fact that now men don't necessarily have to be the the main protagonist every single time that means there's more room for interesting character development and more interesting stories that can be told from from different perspectives and it's okay for us to feel comfortable not being the star and center of the universe all the time all my life i have um all my life I've been told by, um, by men, what women are like. Um, and I feel like all my life I've said, but I'm not like that. And uh, I'm here. I have a vagina. I must be the empirical evidence, uh, that refutes your argument because sure. you're saying this is what a woman is like. And, and I'm nothing like that. So now that we're actually in an age where, you know, especially the younger generation is taking a big uh, mm -hmm. hammer and smashing that gender binary code, I feel like I've been waiting for that all my <laughs> life. I feel like I've been waiting for the concept of intersectionality, um, Kimberly Cren Crenshaw's um, term, and, uh, and also this binary code being smashed all my life. And it's insidious. Um, I hope this isn't too off track, but there, um, there was... Uh, I mean, I think if we concentrated on the similarities as opposed to the differences, we're obsessed with differences, but actually like 99.9% .9 of a human being is um, kind of the same, same, same needs, same wants, same desires, same uh, experience that we're having. There was an experiment in the 40s called the Clark experiment, and they have done it every decade since, and it hasn't changed. And they take children from ages two to five, so barely cognitive, um, mm -hmm all different races, all different genders, uh, all different socioeconomic backgrounds. And they put a white doll in front of them and a black doll in front of them. And they say to these babies, which doll do you prefer? And overwhelmingly, mm -hmm. the children pick the white doll. So that it, even a two-year-old who, you know, they could be coming from a progressive home, but they're still living in a world that gives them the message, you know, uh, when they're barely able to walk, that there is a value assigned to one kind of human being that is more than a value assigned to another kind of human being. And if it's that yeah. insidious for matters like race, of course, the same would be for uh, gender. And uh, I just think when we are obsessed with these differences, like the people who have been left out of, I'm so glad that we are challenging lots of things, including this old idea that uh, you know, we had the uh, enfant terrible, abusive, uh, usually white male creator. And uh, it used to pain my heart so much that art, the thing I love most in the world, would be used as a shield for abusers and abuse to happen. And there's been big discussion in the culture the last few years. You know, what are we losing when we lose these, when we decide to cancel um, the abusers? And I wish the conversation was more about what have we already lost by the millions of people who have existed on earth who had science inventions to give us, uh, math breakthroughs to bring us, artistic creations for us to see, that uh, we didn't let them do that because we had this weird idea of uh, who was allowed to do something and who wasn't. So uh, like I said before, still a long way to go on all of those things, but I'm really excited to be around for, the, for seeing some of this start to be challenged and uh, fall 
Bingo. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of optimism because, you know, sometimes it just feels like the world is on fire. It's just. Uh. The world is on fire. And as you, <laughs> I, I don't have to tell you, the pushback is real. Patriarch real. is in a, in a, having a, a dangerous temper tantrum right now, you know? Yeah. Um, but um, I think we're getting somewhere. Uh, I think my own life, my own life as an artist has been affected. Like what I've been allowed to do, what I've been given opportunities to do has been affected by gender discrimination. Sure. Um, but um, so sometimes I think, hey, what could I have created and what areas could I have created them if I hadn't you know, been uh, put up against the wall against misogynistic gatekeepers and things like that. But I don't know, man. Um, the answer is to keep creating. Creating mm -hmm. is better than destroying. Yeah. Um, any act of creation is an act of hope and, and uh, it's this living, being a human's never been easy. Being an artist to the human has never been easy. And uh, there are, there are definite bright spots in this time that we are living in now. And the backlash is in part evidence of that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It like has to, it has to, the fact that they're so, uh, and it's sad that you know, I have to say it's it is mostly men, and some of them, some of them I know, and it's like the fact that they're pushing back so hard shows that yeah, there's some something is going on because they feel insecure enough that they have to express. So something's happening. Something's um, happening. Yeah. Question: Did you end up getting that English degree? Yeah, I yeah I did, which I, I would never have got. Uh, like th there are weird advantages to being an orphan, right? And uh, so I feel like if my parents had been around when I and I was knocked up as a teenager and telling them I was going to go to university and get an English degree, I'm sure they would have said, "I I think we're going to do something more practical than that." But because they weren't around, and because I was my own captain of my own life from the time I was a little child. Um, I made that decision because that's all I was ever going to be was a writer. Wow. So, uh, so, and I'm so glad uh, uh, that I was able to go and do that harder. Now, if you're on inconsistence, they actually, the obstacles are even more in place to make sure you don't get access to post-secondary education, which is so dumb. I mean, even my impractical English degree, that's what ended up, uh, helping me get off the system and uh, which is what we think the system is supposed to do yeah. but uh, often doesn't act that way for people but yeah no I'm I'm really glad I got my English degree for sure could have been more inclusive I hope uh, uh, the canon of things that people are being taught is more inclusive today I, I remember we had a I took a I think it was an 18th century restoration literature course and the white male professor came in and announced on the first day, he gave us a syllabus. And then he said, you'll see that there's no females in our syllabus simply because in the 18th century, there were none. And uh, we- This is what uh, I'm talking about. The, the females, we all kind of, <laughs> like, ah! we go right to the library. And of course we start finding 18th century female writers right away. <sighs> we on our own start this little group called the Afro-Benz Society where on our free time, we just start reading female writers from that century. The professor is so incensed when he finds out about this group 
that he goes around hauling our posters down every time he sees that there's another upcoming meeting, which is just wild when you think about it. A professor in a university actively sabotaging students' attempts to learn on their own time. Instead of just saying, hey, I appreciate you pointed out this blind spot that I have. Maybe I can incorporate this into my class going forward. Yeah, the threat's real. And there's a fork in the road for those guys to make, those guys that we've been talking about. There's a choice to make. Are they going to keep going? With I totally understand. Sometimes I've said to myself, if I were born a guy, I'd probably be a terrible sexist misogynist <laughs> because <laughs> the system works in my favor and yeah. we like things that work in our favor. So why would we change that? Um, but I think there's better, um, you know, if you see it a different way as well, like there's, there's more freedom to be had on the other side of like, what if you actually put all those, um, that armor of patriarchy down and, uh, decided to find out who you really are outside of your gender, outside of your genitalia, outside of your orientation, like, who are you just actually as a human being? What is it you stand for? Who do you want to be? What do you want to explore? So um, there's a fork in the road, I think, for um, lots of people to look at and make the decision of where they're going to end up. Right, right. So did you like, um, you got the English degree, did you get it with the intention of I'm going to work in film? No, when I first started, oh. <laughs> no, when I first started, I was only going to write poetry. That was all I was ever <laughs> going to do with my entire life. Yeah. Um, and uh uh, I so oddly enough, then I I started working with this poet uh, Don Demansky. Uh, he died a couple of years back. I still think he's a great poet. Uh, he taught me so much. I started working with him, and he was so he was very kind to me and tough with me, which I quite like in terms of discipline, right? Artistic discipline. Um, but he was also so brilliant and I was so young and unformed and was, I had been uh, very disappointed in myself that it, I hadn't been, wasn't a prodigy. And I had no idea in my mind that, dude, if you want to be an artist, this is a craft and you must devote yourself to this. And it's probably going to be 30 years of you devoting yourself to your craft before you feel like that you can call yourself good. any kind of, yeah, good or anything <laughs> like that. So I kind of crumbled under the weight of working under this brilliant writer and I had writer's block for three years. And mm -hmm. that was terrible because my, I had never had another plan for my life. Mm -hmm. um, when I eventually started writing again, I, uh, to my own surprise, I wrote a play and I wrote a kind of a standard, you know, autobiographical one person play. And because it was autobiographical, I felt I should act it. And even though acting uh, you know, especially my actor friends said, that's really terrifying to act. You've never wanted to act. What are you doing? I felt like I had already faced the most frightening thing, which was to not be writing. Um, so I ended up acting in that play. And then uh, that led to me doing more writing and more acting for theater. And that led to me acting and writing uh, in scripted television and film. And then, then, uh, about 15 years ago, CBC Radio uh, wanted me to start doing pieces for them. For some reason, they were under the impression that I was a stand-up comic, which I was not. And they wanted me to do sketches. So I uh, did a few sketches and then started morphing those pieces into basically small radio documentary pieces. And then I started doing longer form radio documentary pieces. And then Jess and I formed our company and I started doing uh, documentary film. 
um, and started directing. Um, and I started directing because I wanted to think uh, more visually. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it's been great for that. And now, uh, and now I'm trying to uh, get a scripted screenplay done so I can uh, direct that. Wow. That's so like, just how you planned it. Like, <laughs> I don't know funny. that there was any plan, but at least I'm still in the air. Uh, you know, yes, that yes, was yes. the plan. And at least that that's happened. Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I can't um, uh, say enough how much I appreciate how visual the uh, stunning this uh, film is. How like, I have seen some stuff somewhat recently that isn't quite as visually well done. How do you, as a non-originally visual person, get yourself to that point where you can sort of spot what's going to look good on film? Well, uh, I mean, one, I actually, my partner is a painter, so I live with a visual uh. artist. Um, so that's helpful. Two, since I've been directing, I've really been, that's been my big thing is when I'm, when I'm thinking about something, what is it I see? What is it I hear? Um, how do I see it? How do I hear it? Um, and then, you know, uh, yeah, film is made by uh, many people. So I'm lucky enough to have been able to find a number of wonderful collaborators, including with the exception of one film, Kevin A. Frazier is uh, uh, my cinematographer who's done all, all the films except one. Uh, that I've done and he's great you know I, I basically get a project on the go I call him up and I go I think we've got a, another one would you work on this with me and um, and he comes over and then we just start kind of brainstorming hmm. um, you know things like um, I did a doc on kids with communication disorders who work uh, who get horse therapy and um, wow. there was a young girl who so identified with the horses that she acted like a horse. She neighed and ran like a horse. She, um, um, and so one of the things that I brought up with Kevin is um, I would like to do a scene where uh, we, the uh, viewer is uh, walking through the forest as if they were the horse. How can we do that? And then he's a great enough collaborator that he goes, hmm, how can we do that? And then he starts hauling out his toys and we start uh, figuring things out. Um, he was as in, taken with the idea to do a film with miniature reenactments as I was. And his work uh, is exceptional in it. I mean, the way those sets are lit, we talk about, we come up with film references and what we want things to look like. And then he is the one that executes that. Mm. The, two things that were really important for filming the miniatures is one that's a static world and we weren't going to be doing things like stop motion um so i knew that one the lighting was going to be the expression on the dolls uh, faces uh -huh. so lighting was key and the other thing was that anytime we were in the miniature world we needed to be moving continually so when we did the short, actually, uh, at times that was really challenging because uh, when we would be doing a close up, it sometimes that meant putting our big camera inside a tiny set to get a close up of an even tinier thing within that set. Um, so the short was useful for actually learning a bunch of things and working out some kinks. By the time we came to do the feature film, uh, Jessica Brown had uh, long found this lens called the probe lens, which is essentially it's almost like a, a pencil lens. And we could stick that on the end of the camera and hasa, like all of a sudden we could move 
uh, move around those tiny sets in a way that we hadn't been able to before. And movement within those miniature sets uh, was really key. So, yeah. So, so yeah. he's a great collaborator. It's funny you say that because uh, because of the way it's shot, uh, in my mind, they were stop motion. There was stop motion animation, but there wasn't. Like they, they was not. <laughs> you know, your mind is like the 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 lighting, the the story, the music, all of that stuff is kind of making you feel like you're experiencing what these 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 um, models are doing. But they're, oh, they're just the static. <laughs> <It's> yeah, <funny. laughs> good. yeah, good. And I think, um, yeah, I think the lighting helps. Like, like I. Uh, you know, when I was looking for a story to use this concept with, I thought this has got to be a subversive story. It's got to be kind of mm. surreal. It's got to be eerie and unsettling because it's got to go against the way that you might expect to see miniatures used. Miniatures mm. are often associated with childhood toys and suitable feminine pursuits. And um, so I knew I needed a story uh, in which we could use the miniatures in a way that you uh, didn't expect with a different kind of feeling. And because... I mean, Bernie, as a little boy, had grown up with the story. He had never met his grandfather, but he heard his relatives all around him all his growing up years talking about this really dark, complicated, painful, traumatic, unresolved story. And so it seemed to me like this was a really heavy thing for a little kid to grow up under. And mm -hmm. uh, so the miniatures seemed very apt and suitable for that. Plus, they just solved a ton of practical problems like uh, recreating 1968, getting access yeah. to military bases, um, things like that. So, right, right. And I should cool. mention this: the sets were um, uh, done with historical accuracy. So we used um, photos and home movies that the Langell family was generous enough to give us. And Iris and Shelley, there might only be a corner in a picture shown or a blur across the room, and they sat down and went through that material so that they could. Uh, recreate with accuracy uh what the Langell homes looked like so much so that when bernie saw one of them his uncle larry said that he had been into as a child uh, his jaw dropped because he was like this is this looks exactly like the apartment i visited when i was a boy that's insane yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow like i man so I can, I can imagine that them watching this, it must have brought up some emotion. And there were some emotional parts near the end. I, I found myself like getting emotional as as uh, these sort of men come together and and realizing, you know, that they were family and, and how important that was to them. Uh, something that I always ask people, uh, I don't know if, so I'm kind of inspired by this podcast that I've been listening to. I was going to ask you what are like some of your influences on your work, but I'm curious if there are any specific uh, female artists that have influenced you. Um, yes. Um, as a writer, Annie Dillard is an American writer and she uh, influences me a lot. She's got, has written a number of great books that kind of part theology and philosophy and poetry and nature writing. And um, so she inspires me a lot. Uh, for this particular film, uh, the work of Frances Glesner Lee was a major inspiration. She was, um, she basically was this girl who was born into a rich family around the 1880s in the States. 
and uh, she wanted to go into forensic science. And uh, because she was a lady at that time, they said, you'll do no such thing. Why don't you go get a hobby? And at that time, it was really popular for especially um, children that came from wealthy families to build miniatures. Uh, but she started building a bunch of miniatures based on real life gruesome crime scenes. Mm. And uh, to the point where uh, those dioramas, which are called the nutshell studies of unexplained death, um, they were used to train police officers and detectives in, in detective work, how to collect evidence, how to see clues. In fact, they're still used today for that same training. She was able to become a criminologist and is actually now known as the mother of forensic science. Wow. Uh, so, uh, but for me, those dioramas are beautiful works of art. Um, and the detail in them is astonishing. Um, so um, she was a major influence for the Burning Lantel film. Um, I can't remember her name, unfortunately, but there was a film that came out a few years ago called 306 Hollywood. And um, that was a documentarian who did a film about um, uh, getting to know her grandmother after her grandmother's death. And she actually mm -hmm. did use some miniatures in that. Uh, another major influence for Bernie Langell, uh, the film was Sarah Pauly's Stories We Tell her documentary about her kind of uncovering her her own family stories um uh -huh. so so yeah I, ha I have quite a few and then you know just locally there's lots of people i'm inspired by i think one of the uh, uh most interesting filmmakers we have here in town is heather young uh she heather. did murmur i love murmur so much i thought that was a beautiful amazing film yes so, yeah, I've seen that. And I've actually, I've asked her if she can come on the show when I first met her. I haven't followed up. Oh, you should totally follow <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> I have to talk to her. Uh, so um, what are you listening to right now, music-wise? Uh, I'm actually listening to Goldfrap right now. Okay. Uh, I'm listening to one of her albums from about 20 years ago called Felt Mountain. Um, because I'm trying to, um, so as I'm working on my scripted project, I, I'm a creature of routine and schedules and organization. I like all that stuff. It makes me feel solid. Like I know where I am. So my, and because I'm, uh, on a serious writing schedule these days, I'm, uh, almost superstitious about the writing routine I have set down. Mm. So um, I begin um, my writing day by listening to a piece of music that I think will put me in touch with the world that I'm trying to write. And currently I'm trying to write a story that's basically a Western folktale. So it's taking the two genres of the Western and folk story. Um, and there's actually a lot of similar tent poles in both those genres. Um, they, they usually feature um, outlier protagonists. Um, there's usually journeys through, you know, the desert or the or the fairy tale woods sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's usually a sacred nature uh, relationship with nature. So I'm trying to do that blend. And uh, there's songs off of that album that uh, put me in touch with that. So nice, nice. Yeah. So... Oh, and there's an old folk song too called "Oh, oh Death," and I've been okay. listening to that a lot as well. Ah, so like, yeah, that that that's, if yeah, that makes sense. It's so it's kind of like a, does that sound is kind of taking you to that world when you're writing? Yeah, hmm. for sure. Is uh, are there any books that you would recommend to us as a writer, or do you read? 
Oh, yes, I do. Uh, I guess I do. I was just seeing if I have right now in terms of I'm reading stuff related to what I'm working on. Uh, so my Western folktale is a revenge story. So I'm reading a book right now on forgiveness and mercy. Um, ah. Notions about that. I've been reading books on uh, Calamity Jane. I've been reading books on Bell Star. Um uh, I've got a book here by a visual artist called uh, In the Dark Woods, and she's a British artist who actually does uh, paperwork on fairy tales. Wow. Um, so uh, currently, right now, I'm reading stuff that's related to what I'm working on. One of the most important things I'm reading is a book called Redressing the West. So, um, so you know, the John Wayne Westerns that have been out there for decades. Uh, that is actually the fairy tale of the North American West. As yes. historians are now unearthing who was actually out there in the West, it wasn't white guys. It was uh, marginalized people. So one of the biggest demographics of, I'm sure you know, you're nodding your head, of, yeah. of who was a cowboy in the North American West, uh, black guys, yeah. uh, then lived. Latino guys, but then the third largest demographic of people who were cowboys out in the North American West were women. Really? Women, yeah, women disguised as men. And they did that for a few reasons. Uh, sometimes it was orientation, sometimes it was identity, sometimes there were practical purposes, like I can I can travel more safely if I'm dressed as a man. But the number one reason women were doing that was the economics. They could get better paying jobs. Um, so, and that makes sense to me that the West actually was the haven of uh, marginalized demographics, including two SLGBTQ uh, plus people. Yeah. That's if you didn't fit into mainstream society, and most of us don't. That is, <laughs> you went out west, and uh, so um, yeah, so that's an important book that goes into uh, redressing the West. Uh, it talks a lot about the uh, LGBTQ. Um, history of the that's fascinating the and and for all the people who like like to think that trans is a new invention by liberal whatevers like <laughs> they've been out here for a while <laughs> yeah there's a lot of status quo hysteria about stuff that is not new yeah uh, but just people are being able to be seen and and talk about who they are and their experience you know and mm -hmm. uh the internet, of course, has a lot to do with that. I mean, I, I remember like 10 years ago thinking um, that I was hearing terms in a faster way than I normally would. Like when a lot of the trans terminology from academia arrived in mainstream culture, it arrived faster than it normally would pre-internet. It would take decades for certain terminology to, to work its way into mainstream culture. Now things happen um, a lot faster. And um, I think that's good. There's terrible things about the internet um and it can have a terrible toll on mental health but in terms of groups of people finding one another um yeah. and even you know for me when you were saying earlier you like some of the things i put on social media well i've been able to you know now if there's a bigot uh yapping is whatever off on social media i can say something from the safety of my home and it's not like i'm out in a bar in the world and i've got to go am i gonna say something and what's gonna happen if i do you know yeah. and then, yeah so Yep. Blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So uh, to wrap it up, is there any piece of advice you would give uh, a young filmmaker? <laughs> not even young. I, I, I got to stop doing that. It's not young because 
I meet a lot of people who are, you know, in their careers or whatever. And they're like, I always wanted to be an artist. Um, it's now. So forget young, uh, someone who just wants to pursue a career. Yeah, that's such a good point about the not young, because there's been a lot of us who haven't been given opportunity up until now. And we are middle aged and older. Yeah. Um, so that's really important. I guess I would say, um, you know, I went to a party once uh, and there was uh, a man I didn't know. And I was sitting by him and he asked me what I did. And I said I was a writer and he kind of went, oh, a writer in a way that he didn't think that was really very great. And he was uh, really, I don't know, kind of pissy to me for such a long time about what it is I did that I um, I don't know how this came into my head. But I turned to him at one point and I said, what's your story about? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, the story you're working on right now, what is it about? And uh (laughs) It all, it, all, it all came out in the wash that he was working on a story at that time. He was, he was a guy who worked for the government and at night he would go home and he was trying to work on the story and he was having a terrible time doing it. And so I said to him, well, you better get that story done because if you don't, you're going to be one bitter old fuck. <laughs> um, and so I think that holds true for all of us. Uh, and we shouldn't be concerned about whether something is good or not, or how it compares to um, what something else might be doing. The most important thing is the act of creation and even an act that is imperfect or fails um, is a still, is, I don't know, there's something noble about that um, and better about that than someone who doesn't create anything at all. So uh that's so great and it's so funny that you recognized exactly what that was <laughs> it's like oh i know a writer when i see one <laughs> oh that's funny uh so uh this is supposed to come out on november 21st 2022 for folks that are time travelers listening in the future uh so uh, how can people watch this film and uh, how can people find you online or find uh, out more about Peep Media? Yeah, OK. Well, so the film is going to broadcast on the documentary channel on November 27th. Uh, after that, we don't have the exact date yet, but soon after that, it will be available on CBC Gem, uh, which is great. Um, in terms of, you can find me. I'm on Facebook under my name. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, uh, and but also uh, our company Pete Media is on um, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well, and we post all uh, updates on the film um, either on my social media or my company's social media, and so that's how you can find out about us. Okay, sweet. So Jackie, thank you very much. This has been fun. It's get great to finally get to talk to you. <laughs> really great to talk to you, Dwayne. Thank you so much for talking to me. I think you're a kick-ass painter. Oh, I really thank love you. your work. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to Art Pays Me. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. You can find more of his music on YouTube. If you got anything out of this please rate, review, or leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening. You can find out more about Art Pays Me at artpaysme.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. I'm at Art Pays Me on all of those platforms. With that, we're out. Peace.